Mr. Bite. So glad you made time to join us today. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Azu Angel Dillon and the Director of Scientific Programs at MIB Agents. And today on Osteobytes, we are talking with Dr. Robert Cantor and Dr. Robert Rabune from UC Davis about their study on inhaled recombinant human IL-15 dogs with naturally occurring pulmonary metastases from osteosarcoma or melanoma. It's a phase one study of clinical activity and correlates of response. Thanks so much, Dr. Cancer and Dr. Rabune for joining us on Osteobytes today. Um, we are gonna be talking with them about this uh, results from the study in dogs. And so um, we're really looking forward to some slides with some cute dogs in them. And that's gonna be the highlight for today. I'm really happy to have you and thank you Vicki for joining us as our panelists today. Vicki is an Osteo Warrior and MIB Agents Junior Advisory Board member. Um, a little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Cantor is a surgical oncologist with clinical expertise in the multidisciplinary management of sarcomas. He also runs a translational research laboratory, which focuses on the therapeutic and mechanistic effects of combining natural killer cell immunotherapy with other treatment modalities to overcome NK dysfunction in the tumor microenvironment of solid tumors, including sarcomas in both humans and dogs. He serves as a co-leader of UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center's Comparative Oncology Program, and his laboratory is one of a select group of labs internationally, which is studying canine NK cells, including first-in-dog studies of canine immunotherapy and adoptive transfer of NK cells in dogs with osteosarcoma. And Dr. Rabune is an Associate Professor for the Department of Surgical and Radiological Sciences and Associate Director at the Center for Companion Animal Health at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. As a veterinary oncologist, his research focus is in the fields of comparative and translational oncology with specific interests in metastasis and novel therapeutics. He received his Bachelor of Science and Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degrees from Cornell University, and he didn't have to travel far for those since he originally hails from Ithaca, and he received his PhD in Cancer Biology from the University of Texas at Houston. After completing his clinical residency training in medical oncology at Colorado State University, he joined the faculty of UC Davis in 2008. Welcome Dr. Cantor and Dr. Rabune, and welcome to everyone joining us today. Please feel free to add any of your questions uh, for both uh, doctors in the Q&A. And before we get started, we have a couple of announcements. We are excited to launch our new monthly newsletter called Connective Issue next week after Labor Day. It will include info of interest to our osteosarcoma, osteosarcoma community, including recent news, and papers, open clinical trials, job postings, info about MIB events and programs, and spotlights on members of our community. To make sure you get all of this info delivered straight to your inbox, just go to our website and hit the Join Our Community button to subscribe. And there are a couple more ways you can support MIB agents and our programs now and in September for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Um, you can still outrun osteosarcoma with us um, for the rest of the month. You can run, walk, cycle, for a 5K, 10K, or half marathon, and you can rack up your mileage um, for the whole month of September. It's a really great way to raise awareness um, for childhood cancer and also raise funds. Um, and we'll put a reg link in the chat if you're interested in participating in that. Um, and you can also make and sell gold bows um, for the mailbox or the front porch for your community, um, or you can just purchase a bow, which will also help raise awareness and funds for pediatric cancer. And um, we'll put some more information about that in the chat as well. And um, we would like to thank the sponsor of this episode, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals, 
BTG provides rescue medicines typically used in emergency rooms and intensive care units to treat patients for whom there are limited treatment options. They're dedicated to delivering quality medicines that make a real difference to patients and families through the development, manufacture, and commercialization of pharmaceutical products. Their current portfolio of antidotes counteracts certain snake venoms and the toxicity associated with some heart and cancer medications. Their drug Viraxase is for high-dose methotrexate toxicity. Um, and then with that, I'll hand it over to Vicki to introduce herself. Hi everyone, my name is Vicki Hoy and as Christina said, I'm a junior advisory board member and an osteo warrior. Uh, I'm currently studying finance at Villanova and I'm actually in my dorm right now, but I had to blur the background because it's a little bit messy in my dorm, but I'm a week into classes now. Uh, anyways, I'm so excited for our guests today, so feel free to take the stage, Dr. Cantor. Okay, well, great. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here today. And, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate the invitation to um, talk to you about our work and our interest in osteosarcoma, specifically uh, related to dogs, but obviously also related to um to humans. And, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, as, as, as was mentioned, um, we're going to be talking to you today about our, our work in, in immunotherapy um, in dogs with, with all kinds of cancer, but in particular osteosarcoma, um, because osteosarcoma is actually a very common uh, cancer in dogs. And so one of the um, things that um, makes this, I think, relevant uh, as part of research and as part of uh, novel uh, development of new, of new treatments is, is sort of the, the gulf between a lot of basic research, which is done in the lab and is done uh, in mice, and treatment of patients, uh, which is obviously done in the clinic and in the real world. And in, 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 in the lab, uh, we're frequently studying very uh, homogeneous uh, cohorts, okay? You know, the mice are usually young, they're usually female, because like mice are like people, uh, females fight less than the males. Um, they're usually lean, inbred, and, and what we call specific pathogen-free, or a very highly controlled um, environment, which um, uh, there's reasons for that. You know, some of it is just practical, and some of it is just the way a lot of the very basic immunology and cancer biology has, has been worked out, and that's very valuable. Um, but it has limitations, and especially in sort of making new treatments that work in mice, that work in the lab, getting them to successfully work um, in people. And, and the statistic you'll commonly hear is only about 10% of uh, treatments that work in mice actually ever become successful in humans. And it's probably even lower than that um, because um, the denominator of, of, of things that actually even ever get tried um, in people um, is lower than the number of things that are tried in mice and, and seem to show promise. And one of the big reasons for that in, in our view, um, and, and one of the things we're interested in is, is just the heterogeneity and the diversity uh, of people, which obviously is, is, is uh, relevant and, and sort of intuitively 
clear, but you know, the patients that we're treating um, are aged, at least for many cancers, osteosarcoma obviously is not, um, but they're both male and female. Unfortunately, their you know, obesity is becoming an increasing problem and that has implications on cancer uh, development and cancer therapy very genetically diverse and, and, and heterogeneous. And also from an immunological perspective, uh, they have a very um, extensive history of pathogen exposure. And some of that is good with things like the microbiome and some of that is, is potentially bad, but all of those things affect your, your baseline immune sort of repertoire and how you respond. And especially in things like immunotherapy, which um, as you may know, is, is really kind of revolutionized cancer therapy in, in the last 10 years or so. So this is a big sort of, you know, gulf between how cancer is studied in, especially immunotherapy is studied in, in, in the lab versus how it's applied in the clinic. And that's why for us, um, uh, you know, studying cancer in dogs, it, you know, we think is very, very valuable because it's sort of a bridge between studies in mice, which are very basic and very, what we call mechanistic, uh, and studies in humans, which are clinical trials, uh, but they take a lot of time, they take a lot of money, uh, and they often can be, you know, ambiguous, where we're not really sure if it worked or it doesn't work. And so um, it becomes hard to know exactly how to apply them. Um, and so that for us is really one of the, uh, you know, strengths of, 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 of studying immunotherapy in dogs is uh, because their cancer is so similar uh, to the cancer that humans get. And this is especially true for osteosarcoma. Um, and it's especially true for immunotherapy because their cancer develops what we call spontaneously or naturally occurring um, in the setting of an intact immune system. And that's very important because although we're trying to get the immune system to respond to cancer and to attack it, um, uh, the cancer has developed uh, in a way to evade the immune system because otherwise um, it never would have developed. So that's an important sort of tension in, in, in cancer development is, is that it sort of intrinsically found a way to escape immune detection uh, to become um, uh, clinically uh, evident. Dogs are very outbred, although they're also interestingly a lot of uh, specific breeds, which are highly inbred. And that also uh, has uh, interest because of the kind of um, uh, comparison of inbreeding in, in, in specific breeds versus outbreeding uh, across uh, uh, the board. And, and we know certain uh, diseases and cancers are, are, are uh, more prone in certain breeds. And again, that's very interesting because it can help, you know, give insights in terms of the interaction between genetics and cancer and, and immunotherapy. Um, and then another really important aspect of, of studying uh, cancer and immunotherapy in dogs is that their environment, their exposures, their microbiomes are all very, very similar uh, to humans in many ways. And so that's sort of the interaction with the environment, what we call the epigenetics um, is very similar and therefore um, uh, seems to make it more translatable in terms of what we find in dogs and, and how it may apply to, to humans. So that's kind of the background of, of what we call comparative oncology um, and, um, and why we think it's important. And you know, osteosarcoma, as I mentioned, is one of the most common cancers in dogs, interestingly enough. It probably is more, or it seems to be more common in dogs than it is in humans. Um, and you know, the statistics are not as good in dogs. We don't have a, a SEER database like we do in humans that 
I would like to see that happen one day. Um, but, you know, some people say as many as 50,000 dogs a year are diagnosed with osteosarcoma in the U.S. Um, and, you know, that's a lot more than, than humans, which is, you know, around 3,000 or so. So it, there's a lot of page, dog patients out there that, that need therapies, too. And as Dr. Rabune always reminds me, and, and of course, I, I know this, but, you know, we're not just, you know, we're, it's important for us to learn to apply this to humans, but we're also trying to treat these dogs who are also suffering from aggressive cancers and, and need treatment there, too. So that's sort of the the kind of overarching, you know, uh, framework for our work in terms of uh, why do we study cancer in dogs? And this is not cancer we're giving to the dogs. This is, like I said, cancer that develops spontaneously, randomly uh, in dogs as it does in people. Um, and it's for us an opportunity to speed translation, uh, test out new therapies, which may take, you know, too long or too expensive, or just never get a chance to test them out in, in humans. Um, and they really kind of, you know, advance the immunotherapy pipeline, which is especially important for osteosarcoma. It's especially important for natural killer cell therapy, which is something that we're very interested in. Um, and there's a really a, a, a unique chance to really do some of this work in dogs. And NK therapy, you know, not to get too much into the weeds, as we say, natural killer cells are uh, these very uh, unique cells in the immune system, which can, you know, spontaneously, uh, naturally kill cancer cells and kill virally infected cells. And so there's a lot of interest in trying to get them to work in cancer uh, as a cancer uh, therapy. Um, and there's advantages to them in terms of being off the shelf, unlike a lot of T-cell therapies, and, and they don't seem to cause as much toxicity as things like CAR T-cells, which you may have heard about, but they're still barriers, and, and they really haven't made any breakthroughs like some of these you know, CAR T-cell therapies in, in other cancers have. And so, again, that, those are things we're, we're, we're looking at, we're studying you know, in our clinical trials where we're trying to treat the dogs, trying to improve their, their outcome, but also learn uh, from the science as well. So this is the trial that we just published on, and Dr. Rabune is going to uh, kindly give more details uh, about it. And he, you know, not only is a close collaborator and scientist, but he's also the, you know, the, the clinician who's taking care of these dogs, and, and he develops a very close relationship with them. But this is the schema where we were uh, giving uh, inhaled, so that giving it as, as a breathing treatment, uh, interleukin-15, which is a cytokine, a very strong stimulant of the immune system, and giving it in an inhaled fashion um, in order to deliver it directly to the lungs where lung metastasis are a major problem in dog osteosarcoma, just like human, uh, to try and get it to work at the lungs where it needs to work but also limit the exposure to the rest of the body. Because one of the problems, one of the major problems with cytokines like IL-15 and interleukin-2 is, is that they're so strong that it's really hard to really find the right balance between seeing effects and seeing toxicity. They can be very toxic. Um, and that's really, you know, sort of the genesis of this trial in terms of trying to find a better way to, you know, find the dose response where we can get responses and not have as much toxicity. Now we had to use human IL-15 um, in this trial um, because of availability of the drug and availability of it in a way that we can give it in a clinical fashion. Um, and so that's obviously an interesting uh, 
you know, a wrinkle in this trial, uh, but an important one. And so that limited us in terms of how long we could give it. We could only give it for 14 days because it's a human cytokine, a human a drug um, molecule, uh, the dogs will develop an antibody response to it. And so if we give it longer than 14 days, they'll either just neutralize it because of antibodies, or even in rare cases, they can, you know, have what's called anaphylaxis, where um, they have a very severe uh, allergic reaction and they can have side effects. So we gave it for two weeks. We knew that that was an issue, uh, but we also thought that we could, you know, um, assess the responses and the immune effects and, and, um, and have it be a sort of foundation or a, a, a building block for, for our work. And why IL-15? Um, because um, it, it, it has advantages over interleukin-2. Interleukin-2 is sort of the poster child of cytokines uh, dating back, you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, but, you know, interleukin-15 seems to actually have a more favorable uh, mechanism of action in terms of its effect on the immune cells um, in terms of stimulation versus suppression. And so this is the, uh, the dosing that we did. We took dosing basically kind of modeled on some human studies in terms of, you know, the doses that were given intravenously or subcutaneously. <clears throat> And I love this video. I don't have the whole video because I'm not technically very savvy, but Dr. Rabune and his team made this video to help show the, the, the clients uh, of, of the dogs how to administer it because they would take this drug home with them and give it you know, twice a day for 14 days. And so they made this video um, for how to do it. And it's very user-friendly. Um, and the dogs were very, very compliant, if you use that term in, in dogs, in terms of having it done to them. They just put this cone over them uh, and infused it, to, or not infused it, um, nebulized it, aerosolized it through a, um, a regular, you know, aerosolization machine that, that people use for giving, you know, buterol treatments to their kids. Um, and it worked very, very well. Um, and it's a really cute video. It's only about eight minutes long. Um, and so now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Rabune. Uh, to give a little bit more details of, of, of the actual results of the study uh, and some of the follow-up trials, and then I'll give a little bit more at, uh, after that. Yeah, thank you. Um, see. Did that switch out okay? Uh, the screen share? All right. So yeah, I just want to um, echo Dr. Cantor. Thank you for, for having us today. We're, we're excited about this and kind of the next step. So um, we appreciate the opportunity to kind of chat about it. Um, my slides will be pretty quick. I think I just wanted to kind of take you through kind of some of the clinical aspects and um, high altitude and getting a little bit more into the weeds and then kind of handing things over to Dr. Cantor, who will talk about the, the correlative studies. But just to kind of set a baseline, there were there were two tumor types that were within this phase one clinical trial. And so we took dogs that had either um, uh, spread uh, metastasis of uh, osteosarcoma or malignant melanoma to the lungs. And so that is something that we commonly see in dogs. They develop these tumors and these tumors are aggressive and, and like to go to the lungs. And just kind of because it is quite different from, from the human side of things, you know, dogs, one of the other things about dogs is that not only is their lifespan shorter, but the the cancer, many of the cancers that dogs get progress much more rapidly. 
Um, and so it, it gives us an opportunity, again, we want to we want to help the dogs, but it also gives us an opportunity to, to kind of more quickly evaluate novel therapies um, because unfortunately they usually progress so quickly. And so the example with, with, with canine osteosarcoma, if we only do adequate local control or amputation many times in dogs, um, if we don't give them chemotherapy, the median survival time is about four to six months. Um, if we do give them chemotherapy, we can get that median survival time up to nine or 10 months or so, but still not, not great. Um, but I think importantly for this trial, once they have distant metastasis to the lungs, the median survival time um, is somewhere between two and three months typically. Um, and these numbers are quite similar in melanoma. We don't have great um, chemotherapy that works for melanoma, um, but again, reasonably short um, or fairly short uh, survival times, and particularly when they have spread to lungs, it's very short. And so I think that's an important kind of um, baseline going into the data that we're going to show you. Um, so keeping that in mind and also realizing this was a phase one trial, and so Dr. Cantor showed very nicely that, you know, this, we kind of, for a phase one, the, the, the primary thing that we're looking for is actually to determine what a safe dose is. So typically that's been kind of a maximum, what we call maximum tolerated dose. So we kind of use this step up to see, you know, what is a safe dose to give. And so it really is a very early clinical trial because not all of these dogs are getting the same dose. Um, and the very low dose, the first ones enrolled might not have any toxicity, but it might also not have any efficacy. And so as we go up, kind of the risk and potential benefits kind of both go up. Um, and so, uh, you know, the first step in evaluation of combination therapies, which was our ultimate goal here, um, to either combine with NK delivery or um, to combine with standard of care chemotherapy, um, we first needed to find out what dose is safe. Um, and then the kind of secondary endpoints of this uh, are to um, evaluate kind of, you know, feasibility. Can we do this? Is it safe? And is there a signal of efficacy? Um, is there some indication that this might, this should move on to additional studies? So the way this was set up is when the dogs were diagnosed um, with um, lung metastases or spread to the lung, we would take some samples. But the, the main thing in, is here is when they started the study, we would give them um, uh, the inhaled IL-15, and this is twice daily. So every 12 hours, roughly for 14 days. Um, and then we would come back and take chest x-rays and see if if they if anything happened. So we will uh, with the blood uh, blood work and as well as clinical you know physical exams and owner evaluation forms, we'd see if there were any side effects. Um, but then when we see if the tumor shrank, that's at day 28 or day 42. So either two or four weeks after completing the inhaled. So I think that's important is there's only this two week window that we gave this inhaled therapy. Um, and this is kind of the, the, the meat of it, and it says preliminary, I need to update that since we published it, but um, 11 dogs with melanoma and 10 dogs with osteosarcoma were enrolled. Um, at each of these cohorts that Dr. Cantor showed, so we started at 10 micrograms, you know, twice a day, we went to 20, 33, 50, and all the way up to 70. Um, we had one dog that had a potential side effect um, early on, and so that, that we actually expanded out. We did six dogs at that dose, but we didn't see any other side effects. So then we continued kind of going up. 
Um, at this highest dose, at the 70 micrograms, this was actually two patients with melanoma that developed kind of complications within their lymph node, um, which is uh, abscessation, which we thought could be um, possibly related to the therapy. And so based on the fact that, you know, one third of the dogs had something here, we defined what this maximum tolerated dose or the kind of recommended dose moving forward was this 50 micrograms. Um, and, you know, again, toxicity was the most important thing for this phase because we were going up in dose. Um, but of the 18 dogs that were, so 21 enrolled, 18 of those were valuable for response. Um, actually, almost about 40% received what we perceived as some sort of clinical benefit. So five stable disease. There was one partial response, which means that it, the tumor shrank more than 30%, and one complete response um, where all of the metastatic lesions went away. And I think uh, that one of the, the key takeaways of this is that we did see durable responses even after this two-week window of response. So if we can induce this immune response, uh, and clinical kind of shrinking of tumors or even stable disease that it could last much longer than just those two weeks. Um, and just a couple of examples. And again, you know, we show you the, the, the ones that responded. So this certainly isn't every dog, but this is a dog that has metastatic osteosarcoma. So you can see that there are several lesions here and this largest one here, there's actually two um, kind of superimposed on each other. Um, but this was given in November. Um, and after two weeks, remember, median survival for these dogs is one to two months. Um, and so, you know, we're out, uh, you know, several months here, um, and the largest lesion is almost gone. Um, about three of the, out of the five pulmonary nodules um, disappeared. Um, this dog actually had complications associated with the local, um, the, the primary tumor site, um, and developed an oral nasofistula, um, and was unfortunately euthanized for that reason. Um, so we saw really good responses in the lungs, and we were happy with that. Um, this is a patient that had melanoma, um, which if you look closely, and I should have said, in the dog, many of you aren't used to looking at this. This is actually the humerus. Um, so the head is up here. Um, the tail is, is down this end. Um, this is the heart, lungs, um, and this is the abdominal cavity with liver and such. So you can see all of these pulmonary nodules here are not supposed to be here. Um, those are metastatic tumors from the melanoma. And this dog actually, um, uh, these tumors uh, shrank in, in about a month and a half uh, after treatment, um, and this was a year later. Um, so these, these lesions went away. Um, this dog was quite old um, and actually developed neurologic signs uh, and was euthanized uh, in March of 2021. But after two weeks of therapy, um, these tumors uh, shrank for, for over a year. Um, so, uh, Dr. Green, sorry, just a question on that last um, slide. So, yeah. so that was that showing a durable response of, of about a year. And just curious, what um, you know after after they were they were given uh, the the treatment for those first two weeks, at what how quickly do you actually start to see response? Yeah, in um, for this particular dog, this was actually um, right when COVID shut down everything <laughs> at the end of February. Um, so we were supposed to be getting radiographs of these dogs two and four weeks after completing therapy. This dog we didn't get until I think six weeks after it completed therapy and they were all gone. 
So we know that it moved very quickly as opposed to this dog, I, you know, for, for time's sake, I didn't show it, but this dog actually had stable disease in the first month and then they, they shrunk and continued to shrink over the next three months. So a little bit different in those two patients, but good question. Um, so just want to get moving a little quicker so I can hand it back over to Dr. Cantor, but because um, he'll talk about all the world is, but, but I think some important take-homes was um, that, you know, this was very well tolerated in the dog, so we saw very few side effects, um, and there was this preliminary signal of efficacy, um, and that, 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 that duration of response when we saw it could be extended even though we only gave two weeks. And, and I think part of that might be explained some of the, some of the things that we did. So we looked at um, basically the levels in the blood of IL-15 after we give it inhaled. And the thought is that we're giving much higher doses to the lungs than we'll see systemically. And perhaps that's why it's well tolerated. Um, and indeed, the, the data, this is probably a little bit confusing, but the data hopefully supports, um, if it makes sense, supports that. Um, these are basically levels over a period of time after we give the inhaled IL-15, and we're measuring this in the plasma, so blood levels. And we can see in general, the higher the dose that we went in dogs that got 33 versus 50 versus 70, it tended to have higher levels. Um, and this is just a time course over the hours. So not only did we see these levels in the blood, but we saw that they lasted, they appeared to last, you know, six hours or longer after an inhaled. Um, and when we look at, um, when we actually compared that to dogs that got this delivered subcutaneously, so an injection, injection got, you know, very, very high levels up to, you know, almost 2000 um, picograms per mil, whereas the dogs that are getting inhaled have much lower systemic levels. So we think this is being held in the lungs and perhaps that's why we're seeing more activity. Um, but we still did see these significant cytokine responses. So IL-15 induces changes in other immune pathways and cytokines. And so importantly, we did see it um, still occur. We saw an immune response in these dogs, despite the fact that they had much lower systemic exposure um, to this drug, which is probably why um, it was fairly well tolerated. Um, uh, and then again, quickly, so um, we were encouraged by the signal of efficacy and safety. Um, and then um, to kind of show you a little bit about the next step, um, this is a paper that was published not too long ago um, in, in March of last year. So this looked at 324 dogs. Um, and I told you that, you know, the standard of care for these dogs are um, amputation and we follow them with standard chemotherapy. So this paper then randomized them to get a couple other things. But one of the major things that came out of this for the veterinary side is that we realized in this, in this large population of dogs that carbapotin chemotherapy um, fails in about 40% of dogs very, very quickly. Um, and so at, at, at even 15 weeks, despite the fact they got 12 weeks of chemotherapy, 40% of dogs are developing metastatic disease that early. And so based on that, we realized that, um, you know, there is this cohort of dogs that do very poorly with chemotherapy. And so what we wanted to essentially do is design a study where we could combine this with chemotherapy in some way um, to see if we could help out those dogs that fail very early. Because if we wait until after chemo, it's too late for these dogs. 
Um, and so uh, again, we just switched things up a little bit to say that this, this particular chemotherapy, this trial, the dogs will get amputation and chest x-rays. We sneak this two-week therapy in here um, post-amputation and before they start the, the chemotherapy. And then the main thing we're looking at is proportion that are going to be disease-free at 15 weeks. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. I know I'm going a little bit quickly here. Um, but uh, we are we are actively enrolling at uh, four sites for this through the Comparative Oncology Trials Consortium. Um, we're working together with NIH and other schools, including Wisconsin, Colorado State University, um, and uh, University of Illinois. So we're enrolling dogs at all of these sites. Um, we've got uh, the majority of dogs, I want to say we've got about 39 out of the 40 dogs enrolled. Um, so uh, we're moving very quickly on this and looking at uh, to see if we can um, potentially help these dogs that, that fail early or if it may even do better, you know, in addition to chemotherapy long term. Um, so uh, acknowledgement slide, for, but for the sake of time, I will hand things back over to Dr. Cantor. So, so yes, as Dr. Rabin mentioned, you know, the results of our phase one trial uh, we thought were encouraging. Um, we saw some some actual tumor shrinkage, some some responses. We saw stable disease, and and also about uh, an additional five dogs. And and given that it was only two weeks of therapy, we thought that was meaningful. Um, and we so we established a, a maximum tolerated dose for for follow up trials and and a recommended phase two dose. And and what we also saw in some of the um, uh, correlative studies, which I won't uh, belabor, is we saw that the uh, uh, immune system in these dogs was responding. The NK cells and the T cells were being activated, uh, suggesting that that was the mechanism, that the uh, inhaled uh, interleukin-15 was stimulating the immune system and stimulating what we call the cytotoxic lymphocytes, uh, which can uh, attack cancer. And, and one of the um, one of the things we looked at are, are what's called killing assays, which is when um, you uh, take your NK cells and, and you expose them. This is in, 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 uh, in vitro, uh, you know, in the lab. We take the blood back to the lab and we isolate the NK cells or, or we take the, just the overall white blood cells in the blood, which have NK cells, and we mix them with, with tumor cells um, and in this case, you know, an osteosarcoma cell line from dogs. And, and we look at the number of tumor cells that get uh, lysed or get killed uh, by the blood cells. And, and our hypothesis was is that we would see uh, increased cytotoxicity or increased killing uh, over time in response to the drug. Uh, the cytokine therapy, and that the dogs who had the greatest increase in uh, killing uh, uh, potential, killing activity, would have the best response. Um, and that's uh, basically, um, you know, in a nutshell, what, what we saw, which was very encouraging. And we looked at both melanoma and osteosarcoma, because this, as, as was mentioned, this trial included both of those uh, types of cancer, because those are both uh, very um, aggressive cancers in dogs, and they both are cancers that go to the lungs uh, and often go just to the lungs. So treating lung-only disease is, is a significant uh, research need. 
Um, and so, like I said, we 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 did see that cytotoxicity on treatment was was higher uh, than the baseline. So they, there was immune activation, and the dogs that had the greatest uh, increase in cytotoxicity uh, had an association with better survival and better response. So that to us was suggestive that you know the 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 cytokine was working in in the way we we were hypothesizing that it was working. Um, and we were also doing, and, and we continue to do, um, high throughput sequencing um, on the immune system. So we're not doing as much uh, sequencing of the tumors, although that's obviously important uh, and something we're interested in, but we're interested in sequencing the immune cells and, and looking at their uh, RNA profile of, of uh, you know, how they're being turned on or turned off uh, by the drug and by the cancer and so forth. Um, and what we saw, this was early on about the first seven dogs before uh, COVID really uh, shut everything down, um, was that there was a grouping uh, based on the NK gene signatures between the dogs who responded here. This was uh, patient number four and patient number two uh, versus the dogs that didn't respond. So there was a, um, a separation or a clustering based on clinical outcome, at least, you know, uh, or, you know, in this smaller sample size. Um, and what was also interesting, because these, remember, we get samples over, over four time points, um, was that, um, they tended to kind of, uh, group by dog. So the different colors, I don't know if you can see this, represent different dogs and the different shapes represent different time points. And there is some movement uh, by time point, particularly in the patients who did better, um, but they're still uh, you know, grouping by color, which suggests that a lot of it is, seems to be, at least in this setting, sort of hardwired in. So, and that's one of the, the controversies, or not controversies, these sort of areas of interest in the field is, do you respond based on kind of where your immune system is at the beginning, or do you respond because of the way you change over time? Because, you know, everybody kind of starts out the same, but some people uh, uh, respond differently. And at least in our data, if that makes sense, um, it seems to be that, uh, uh, it's, it's based on the, where they are kind of at the beginning and whether that's because their immune cells are different genetically or like I said, epigenetically because of their exposures and all that stuff is, is an open question and one we're very interested in. And we've been continuing our sequencing because that's really one of the best ways to analyze um, uh, NK cells, especially in dogs um, and looking at, at some of these questions and also looking at how it kind of fits in to the uh, you know different species that are so important, humans and mice. And this is some other kind of cool data that we find very interesting, kind of circling back to the whole issue of inbred versus outbred. Um, and, and dogs are sort of right in the middle. And this is a complicated uh, you know, uh, graph here, what we call a similarity matrix. But if you look at these boxes here, uh, the colors represent how closely uh, linked the uh, sequencing data are uh, between the subjects. Now, mice are highly inbred, obviously, um, and so their uh, NK cell uh, sequencing is almost superimposable. 
um, and humans are highly outbred. And so there's tremendous diversity. Uh, but what's interesting is, is that uh, uh, dogs are in between. Um, and for this study, we did just beagles. Um, and so um, even though beagles are an, an, an inbred breed, so to speak, um, they still have kind of an intermediate between humans and dogs in terms of their uh, uh, NK cell um, sequencing profile. Um, so how does this relate to humans? I mean, obviously we sort of mentioned that, that you know, osteosarcoma is very similar and dog physiology, cancer biology, immunology are similar, but obviously it's not exactly the same. <clears throat> and so more work needs to be done. And one of the ways we can even see this is, is you know, osteosarcoma is more common <clears throat> in younger people in humans. It's, you know, adolescent and young adult, uh, uh, you know, primarily, but interestingly in dogs, it's more of an older dog uh, affliction. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about dogs is it's, it's more common in larger dogs, larger breeds. And so is that, you know, because they just have bigger bones? I mean, obviously, probably not, but why, why is that is, is a question because that's a sl slight, seems to be a subtle difference between people. So there are important similarities, obviously, but it's also important to remember that there, there are differences as well. Um, so we uh, are also, you know, one of the ways we think this is relevant to humans um, is, is that obviously we know that immune cells and tumors are important. And one of the problems with osteosarcoma and just sarcomas in general in humans is they tend to be uh, infiltrated by low numbers of immune cells. Um, but even though there are typically low, uh, more is better. Uh, and we see this, this is some of our own data from a prior publication, but other people have published that in human sarcomas, more immune cells uh, are, are better. And that primarily is for T cells, which has historically been the main interest in, in immunotherapy. But we've been looking at it in NK cells, and these are from hum human uh, samples. Um, and we see that more NK cells uh, seem to be uh, associated with better outcomes as well. Although if you're a critic, which I, I like critics, you'll notice that these p-values are technically not statistically significant. They're always like p.07, p.08, which always gives me a little heartburn. But, you know, hopefully uh, it, it's, it's not um, uh, spurious. But this seems to be suggestion that NK cells are also important um, in human sarcomas. And so, you know, that's number one why we think this could be relevant um, to, uh, to humans. And then what we've been looking at more so um, uh, in detail in some of these uh, benchtop and what we call correlative assays, we've been looking at TIGIT. And TIGIT is a, is a new uh, checkpoint that is receiving a lot of interest in immunotherapy. So we, we've all kind of heard of PD-1, PD-L1, I, I think. Um, and that's what's you know, been working in human melanoma and lung cancer and bladder cancer. Unfortunately, hasn't worked very well in sarcoma. But some of these newer checkpoints are now being developed for, for antibody targeting those. And we've been very interested in TIGIT for two reasons. Number one, we think in, in our data that TIGIT is sort of the critical um, uh, what we call exhaustion marker um, in NK cells. And, and we know that T cells don't work very well in sarcomas, but we think NK cells have a role. And so that's why we're interested in TIGIT. Uh, and we've seen our data show that, that TIGIT um, is expressed in sarcomas, 
um, including in the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Um, and mortigit tends to be associated with worse outcomes. So we're looking at ways to combine uh, uh, IL-15 with TIGIT blockade. And so do dog and K cells uh, uh, express TIGIT? Well, we have uh, evidence for that as well uh, from our sequencing data um, in both Beagle blood on the left here and uh, from some of our patients on the trial that we were just discussing on the right. So one of the things we're interested in now is combining IL-15 inhaled, for example, with TIGIT blockade, because we think it could be sort of this one-two punch that a lot of people talk about where you give something to give gas to the immune system to stimulate it, and you give something to take away a break to uh, 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 also prevent the immune system from being tamped down by some of these um, uh, checkpoint uh, pathways. And so we've done some of this with uh, patient samples, but in the lab where we, you know, expose them to IL-15 to stimulate the NK cells, um, and we show that they respond to 15. So these are human samples, whether it be blood or from tumors, you know, I'm a surgical oncologist, so um, I'm uh, trying to treat patients by surgically removing their tumors, um, and, and we then can look at it in the lab, and like I said, to see that the tills from the tumor respond to IL-15. And then when we uh, then do this one-two punch that I mentioned, where we give a mile 15, and then we add TIGIT blockade, we also see even better responses. So we're hoping that this is, um, you know, an, uh, a path forward for us for a novel therapy in terms of combination. Now, we don't have a TIGIT antibody in dogs right now, uh, but that's something we're hoping to see. Um, and there are other checkpoints as well that we were interested in trying. But this we think could have relevance to humans as well, for example, because there are TIGIT blocking antibodies that are in clinical trials in, in, in humans. So in summary, I hope I haven't gone too long. Uh, we think that dogs are really a valuable, innovative model to bridge bench to bedside immuno-oncology approaches. Um, our uh, data uh, seem to support that inhaled IL-15 is active in dogs with osteosarcoma with lung metastatic disease um, and potentially as an adjuvant therapy after amputation. Um, and we're looking at um, immune monitoring and sequencing and transcriptomics as a way to increase our knowledge of NK biology, but also um, uh, help to uh, uh, identify biomarkers which can help us further build on these results. And so our future directions uh, as I mentioned, we're looking to combine IL-15 with TIGIT blockade. We're looking at microbiome studies. That's a hot area in, in immuno-oncology. And obviously, we're looking to try and find a way to translate the human clinical trials. Um, and this is a picture of me and of my dog and me. Uh, and uh, the Cancer Center wanted me to have a picture of, of that. So it's not just because I love my dog, although obviously I do. Um, and, uh, you know, these are all of our funding sources and collaborators. You know, the, the, our vet school is fantastic, one of the best in the world. We couldn't do this without them. Um, and, and we've had generous support from a lot of funding agencies. And these were the people in my lab from about two or three years ago who have now moved on to bigger and better things and we miss them, but we're very proud of them. So thank you again for your attention and, and we'd be more than happy to answer any questions.
We just had one question come in the chat. Uh, someone asked, did the IL-15 dogs have prior chemotherapy exposure? And do you anticipate a more robust response if given simultaneous with chemotherapy? Um, I can take a, a quick <laughs> shot at that, and I, I might leave the second part to Dr. Cantor, but um, many of the dogs in our trial um, did, because our this phase one trial, um, the dogs had already developed metastatic disease to the lung. Many of them had already received chemotherapy in the past. Um, some of them actually were had received some form of immunotherapy. Some of them were actually um, previously included in that dog dog study with the 324 dogs. Um, so um, there was some immunotherapy in the past. Uh, many of the dogs got chemo, and some of the dogs uh, actually also had radiation therapy as well. Um, so it was a heavily pretreated population. Um, and I'll kind of segue into Dr. Cantor's um, response for the second part. I, I think, you know, one of the questions that we are asking is, you know, how how chemotherapy may impact this immune response, and, you know, is it possible that, uh, you know, that the chemotherapy that we're giving after the IL-15 could actually, you know, maybe negate some of the immune response that we're hoping to induce. I guess that's a fear, um, but there are other ways where I think that they could um, be additive or synergistic. And uh, Dr. Cantor is, uh, I'll push that over to his side of the table. No, I mean, I, I totally agree uh, with you that historically, uh, and still to this day, that there, you know, the the their, the thinking was that chemotherapy was suppressive, um, and therefore would um, uh, limit the immune system from responding. But uh, I think, like a lot of things, it's much more nuanced than that. And and um, there are many situations that uh, chemotherapy may be beneficial. It kills cancer cells, and those cancer cells then release. Uh, uh, antigens, uh, part of the cells that then can be picked up and stimulate the immune response. And, and it depends on the type of chemo, different chemos affect the immune system and, uh, uh, and the, uh, other cells in the body in different ways. So it's actually an area, of a lot of interest right now is the combination therapy in general is, is obviously very, um, important, but but uh, how to kind of rationally combine them. And, and there are some studies that show that chemotherapy actually can promote or increase um, immune responses. Uh, so I think that's a, a, an important question because there could be beneficial uh, effects of chemotherapy to make immune responses better. The other thing that's interesting too, kind of along those lines is it's probably more an impact of tumor burden. I mean, pretreatment, you know, affects the uh, bone marrow and affects, you know, um, immune reconstitution, but tumor burden in and of itself can suppress the immune system. Um, and so that may be more uh, the uh, factor when patients have really progressed through a lot of things and they have a lot of tumor burden. So treating earlier with immunotherapy may be better. And, and we've seen that in some of the neoadjuvant trials where the response rates seem to be better when immunotherapy is given earlier in the course. Well, I'm curious, uh, Dr. Rabin, you also mentioned some of the dogs had had radiation therapy and kind of similar conversation to chemotherapy. Um, you know, if there's any kind of synergistic uh, value of radiation therapy and 
triggering immune response. And I'm wondering if in your if your data you can you have any like correlated data on that um, kind of the response in in dogs that received radiation therapy. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and um, I, I mean, I think you know the the how we build this into the kind of the traditional therapies is something that we're actively working on, and so I'm um, just kind of following up real quick that you know Dr. Cantor and I have a, a trial that's moving forward, which is we haven't talked about, but based on kind of giving ke- a little bit of chemotherapy prior to starting the inhaled. So we're we are kind of testing all those scenarios, and for the radiation, yeah, Dr. Um, Cantor actually collaborated with one of the radiation oncologists here, Dr. Kent, who is actually one uh, in the photo <laughs> early on. Um, uh, Dr. Kent's a, a veterinary radiation oncologist, um, and they looked exactly at that. So combining radiation therapy with um, immunotherapy for dogs that maybe weren't good candidates for amputation um, and looked at immune responses. Um, and they did see some, uh, I think, along with Dr. Monjazeb was in those studies uh, uh, at the cancer center, they did see some systemic potential responses, um, despite kind of uh, only treating locally with radiation and then a systemic immunotherapy. Dr. Kanner, do you have anything to add there? No, no, I, I, I agree. Again, it seems to be that um, the radi- in part the radiation sort of acts as a, a kind of vaccination type of thing where it kills cancer cells and those uh, cancer cells then get picked up by the immune system and, and um, act as, a, um, as a, uh, a priming of the immune system to respond. Yeah, and I, I would just add your, you know, your questions are are right on kind of our our track of thinking. You know, this IL fifteen, while it was encouraging, you know, by itself, it's it's not, you know, a, a magic bullet. It's not um, something that was curing disease. I, I think the combination of this with these standard treatment options or with other immunotherapies. Is kind of the direction that we are headed as a group. Um, you know, we're encouraged, but we know there's lots more questions and, and potential trials that we can do. Another question I had was that when you give uh, dogs chemotherapy, are these similar proportions as you give to like humans with like a protocol chemotherapy treatment, or are they much less, you know, proportionally? Yeah, good question. It's um, so our chemotherapy in dogs. The the goal is a little bit different. Um, you know, with with dogs, we have to be able to kind of um, we we can't kind of push them as hard as um, you know you all have been pushed um, with chemotherapy, and so. Dogs, we kind of landed on this, what we call standard of care protocol is a platinum based protocol with either four or six doses of carboplatin. Um, and carboplatin tends to be better tolerated than cisplatin. Um, so I think to, to speak to your question, you know, dogs typically do very well on chemotherapy. Their quality of life is very good, um, but we're probably sacrificing a little bit of impact and efficacy. Um, because we're we're wanting them to have good quality of life throughout what time they have left. And so there have been some trials looking at combinations of like cisplatin and doxorubicin and even methotrexate. Um, They didn't seem to do much better. And so we kind of landed on, well, this balance of 
this carboplatin seems to be effective, but it doesn't, you know, they still have a good quality of life and it's just kind of where we've landed in that happy medium. Did, did that answer your question? Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you. Um, and I know we're almost at time, but I thought I'd sneak in one more question about, um, you had a slide about the sequencing and I just wanted to just clarify and make sure I understood. So um, it was, there was a slide where there were kind of the clusters. And I think you had mentioned that you were sequencing the immune cells as opposed to the tumor cells, which is kind of, I guess, what I'm more familiar with. And so can you kind of speak more to that? Like, what is that sequencing data tell you when you're sequencing the immune cells? Right. So, so this is what's called RNA sequencing or okay. RNA seq, uh, which is different from tumor sequence like Foundation One or Tempest or some of those things, where that's um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, DNA sequencing and looking at mutations um, in the uh, in the cancers, and you know that's where you get the report of you know. Um, the different mutations looking for, uh, you know, targetable drugs to, to apply. Um, so we're doing RNA sequencing, which is looking at um, not what mutations they have, but what genes are expressed, what pathways are active um, to get an insight into, you know, is the cell functional, hyperfunctional, suppressed, exhausted, you know, et cetera, you know, looking at, you know, some like interferon responses or, you know, different pathways and they call that pathway analysis or so forth. And so that is what we're looking at to get some insight into how the immune cells are, um, are metabolically, not metabolically so much, but the, you know, the proteins that are being expressed give you insights into kind of what, what their functionality is. And so, and that's what we're doing, RNA sequencing on NK cells isolated from the blood. Um, and so you have you don't have to, but we generally try to to purify or, or isolate this cell population we're looking at. So it's more of an apples to apples comparison because if you obviously just sequence, you know, a, 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 a pool of cells, you don't know what's sort of driving the differences you're observing because maybe there's just more NK cells than that patient's blood than others versus this NK cells more proliferative or more activated or, or so forth. Great, thank you. Well, we're looking forward to, we'll have you on again, hopefully uh, when you have results from the other, I mean, it's nice that the study has been a great launching pad for the study uh, to kind of have the IL-15 in between uh, amputation and chemo, and then also uh, in combination with the ticket um, blocker. So. Um, Really great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on Osteobites today. Yeah, thank and you. It's been a pleasure. Um, for osteosarcoma patients, um, both human and canine everywhere. Um, more information on this and all osteobites can be found on YouTube, on our website at mibagents.org, and at your favorite podcast place. And please join us next week on Osteobites on the 8th, September 8th. We're going to be talking with Dr. Natalie Gaspar. She is a pediatric oncologist at Gustave Roussy Cancer Campus in Villejuif, France, and she's going to be giving an update on a phase one, two study of single agent levatinib in children and adolescents with refractory or relapsed solid malignancies and young adults with osteosarcoma. And um, note, we are at a special time next week because Dr. Gaspar is in France and we didn't want to make her stay up super late. Um, we will be on at 12 p. Eastern instead of our regular 3 p. Eastern. So 
put that on your calendar, 12 o'clock Eastern next Thursday. Um, and you can find the rest of our lineup um, for the year on our website. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or topics you'd like to hear about, um, just uh, drop us a note. Um, thank you again, Dr. Cantor, Dr. Rabune, and Vicki for spending an hour with us today. And to our sponsor, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. And thank you for joining us today on Osteobites. We hope to see you next week. Thanks so much, everyone.